Get the little ones, sit back, relax, and listen to the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. The Red Panda Chronicles, Manhunt, Part One, October 1939. The heavy iron door groaned under its own weight, and for a moment it seemed as if the burly guards would be unequal to the task of shifting it. At that instant, the massive hinges creaked and the door began to slide on its track. The afternoon sun streamed in through the gate, and the man called Seven stepped toward it instinctively. A uniformed guard quickly pulled him back to reality. Hey! the guard snapped. Hold your horses, pal. We ain't walking out of here. Seven looked at the man, startled, but without other apparent reaction. Get over here! the guard snapped again. Don't make me come get you! Take it easy, Charlie, another guard called. That one don't speak no English. Charlie blinked in surprise. The prisoner in front of him looked wholly unremarkable. Pull the other one, he barked to his partner. Nah, John Doe, no papers, came the reply. They think he's a Pole. Charlie grunted. He was, maybe. I don't guess there's much of Poland left. Still Polish, a third guard argued, and he still doesn't speak English. You Polish? Charlie asked the prisoner, pointing his nightstick as he did so. Polish? Seven replied with a garble of speech that he hoped Charlie could not understand, as his answer would only have made sense if he were ordering breakfast in a Warsaw cafe. Charlie grunted again. Yeah, okay, he said, both louder and slower, with another point of his nightstick, this time toward a weathered brown bus that was parked in the courtyard. Just get over here. We're going for a ride. Seven looked glumly at the bus. It was as solidly built as everything else in here, and he began to wonder if this was as close as he would ever get to the afternoon sun again. As he walked toward the hulking vehicle, one of the guards grabbed his right arm and cuffed a short length of chain to his wrist. He almost protested, but managed to keep silent. An instant later, the other end of the chain was bound to the wrist of another prisoner, a soft-looking man at least ten years his senior, with a shock of bright orange hair and a ridiculous pointed beard. Charmed, I'm sure, the man said with a grim smile. Quiet, you, Charlie said, thumping his stick into his open left hand as if looking for an excuse to let it fly. The man with the orange hair did not seem intimidated, but he also did not speak again. Seven and his new appendage climbed aboard the bus, along with two other bound pairs of prisoners, all alike in their grey coveralls. The bus roared to life, and back in the courtyard Charlie blew his whistle two hard times. Bus moving out, he called to the tower above. Bus moving out, came the reply from the spotter, as the transport lumbered slowly toward the open door. Wave goodbye to the dawn, ladies, the guard on the bus said merrily. If you're lucky, you won't see her again. If you're unlucky, the judge will send you somewhere a whole lot worse. Seven sat with his forehead against the window, looking for any sign. If it were going to happen, it made sense that this would be the time. They couldn't risk leaving him here. Surely there would be a translator waiting at the courthouse, and the tale of the unhappy pole would be blown almost immediately. After that it would get a hundred times more complicated. If it were going to happen, then this had to be the moment. 
Of course, he thought as the bus pulled beyond the wall, there was always a chance they would just kill him. That's probably what he would have done. But these were not seasoned professionals. Seven was thrown forward in his seat as the gate behind the bus was rocked with an explosion like thunder. The guard began to shout instructions, but he was silenced an instant later when a heavy truck drove hard into the side of the bus, bringing it to an immediate halt and throwing the armed guard back into the wall of the bus where he fell, unconscious. There was a roar of gunfire from quite nearby, and a chorus of replies from the top of the wall, raining down all around them, shattering windows and sending the other prisoners ducking for cover. All except the man with the orange hair. He waited calmly through the gun battle, seemed unfazed by the round of small explosions that seemed to end it. He picked up the keys from the guard's belt, and opened the locked door that separated them from the chaos outside. He made a small, cross-clicking sound with his tongue as he noticed the absence of a key for the handcuffs that bound him to his fellow prisoner. He pulled the chain that linked their arms tighter and drew Seven from his shocked silence. "'Arise, young hero,' the man said with a gleam in his eyes. "'Our moment has come.'" Mike Larson was not a nervous man by nature. He was thick-necked and red-faced and looked like he was more accustomed to putting the fear into others than taking it on himself. He had been a guard at the Don Jail for more years than he cared to remember, and he had been running security for most of those years. He was a man who had seen it all and not been affected by much, but there was something about the two masked crime fighters that were currently taking their sweet time with his crime scene that always gave him fits. Part of it was long-standing habit, he knew. In days gone by, the Red Panda and the Flying Squirrel were outlaws, and it would have been serious had Chief O'Malley's cops ever figured out how often Warren Pembroke had cooperated with them. These days, they were practically accepted as a branch of law enforcement, at least as far as the average citizen was concerned. But there was a difference between calling them in and having every newspaper in town know that you did so, and that was what Mike Larson was trying to avoid today. He glared daggers toward the top of the wall where the man in the long gray coat and bright red domino mask was moving from one blast site to another without apparent hurry. There was no sense in trying to rush him. Larson always felt the big man's partner was more approachable, mostly because he had never seen her truly vicious side. He lumbered toward the bullet-ridden sedan she was sitting in. There wasn't much left of it. At the moment that the driver of that car had opened fire at the prison bus, the mounted gun on top of the wall had shattered every window and torn into the steel. It was a picture ready-made for page one, which is why Larson and his men had hidden the damaged prison bus almost immediately after the escape. Don't make his men look vulnerable. Show the consequences of messing with them, Larson had figured, and the warden hadn't disagreed. The car made an even more intriguing picture now, with the mysterious masked heroine in the front seat, but that was a photo Mike Larson was determined to keep off the front pages of the city's finest rags. "'You are about done,' he said, leaning down to the squirrel's eye level and trying not to scowl. "'You called us in, Peach Pitch,' she said, not looking away from the steering wheel. "'Don't get skittish now.' Larson huffed and drew himself up to his full height. It was an unconscious action that would have intimidated most people, but the flying squirrel was not most people. She continued her work without looking up. "'Are you fingerprinting the steering wheel?' he asked, dumbfounded. "'Give the lady a cupie doll,' the girl in the catsuit sang. "'I am, in fact, fingerprinting the steering wheel.' "'But you already know who you're looking for,' Larson barked. "'And the flunky who left those prints is dead!' 
And if you'd fingerprinted him before you threw him on the meat wagon, we'd have known who he was, she said matter-of-factly as she squirmed out of the ruined car. The coroner has the crazy idea that's his job, and he isn't wrong. And anyhow, why is that more important than finding the poet before he goes bananas all over the city again? Larson clenched his fists until his knuckles were white. We'll find the poet, Mr. Larson. A voice behind him quietly rolled in like a far-off peal of thunder. Mike Larson turned to see the masked man walking down the high prison wall as easily as one might stroll along the street, the occasional flash of sparks from his static shoes offering the only clue as to how he defied gravity so effortlessly. But in order to do so, we need to understand all of the variables. I don't understand, Larson said quietly. Even after all these years, the big guy still spooked him, even if he'd never have admitted it. Those men shot to kill, the red panda said, stepping off the wall and striding forward, seeming to bring the shadows with him. They threw military ordnance at the guards along the wall. The poet has never used that kind of crude brutality. Yeah, well, it's hard to get good help these days, Larson snorted. About that, the squirrel added, flipping gracefully across the hood of the ruined car to reach them. The poet's henchmen normally have a passing resemblance to famous writers. He dresses them up in costumes and calls them Keats or Shakespeare. It feeds his mad desire to be seen as the greatest writer in history, the Red Panda said, taking the fingerprint sample she offered him and placing it in one of his coat's many pockets. Fame and fortune are one and the same to the poet. Which is why it makes no sense that his new gang are all John Doe's with no ID, she nodded, and two of them fought to the death. He doesn't normally pay for that kind of loyalty. What about the other man who escaped, the Red Panda asked. They were all on their way to the courthouse, yes? Larson nodded. He's a uh, poor, caught with phony papers. Probably got out one step ahead of the Nazis. He's got no English at all and he's chained to a maniac. The squirrel nodded. He's probably having a real interesting day. What was the poet doing in the Don Jail anyway, the Red Panda asked Larson. Wouldn't the lunatic sanitarium have been better equipped to deal with him? Queen Street is a revolving door, Larson growled. Judge Crowley said there was nothing wrong with the poet that a little time in the Don's general population couldn't cure. I guess he showed him, the flying squirrel shook her head, and the ears on top of her cowl waggled slightly. Think Crowley might be in on it? Possibly, the Red Panda nodded. But if the poet had bribed a judge, he'd have left behind a poem bragging about it. A sonnet at the very least. Are you suggesting that freak conned his way into my jail because it would be easy to escape? Larson was steaming mad now. I lost three guards today. I am sorry, Mr. Larson, the Red Panda said calmly. We need to consider every possibility if we are to have a chance of finding the fiend responsible. Look, Larson said. All I know is Warden Pembroke kept his crime scene locked down for you to work. He's tap-dancing the world's longest press conference to keep the papers off your back while you do it, and until every escapee is back in a cage, the lives of my men inside those walls are at risk. The whole place is ready to blow. You gotta find the poet, and I mean now. Mr. Larson, the Red Panda said seriously, we're already working on it. <laughs> The streets around the dawn were teeming with activity, and Detective Andy Parker was at the center of it all. As soon as the word about the jailbreak got out, he had raced toward Riverdale without orders and found himself the ranking member of Toronto's finest on site. Almost immediately, he became the field coordinator for the official manhunt that was growing quickly. A cordon was set up at Dundas and quickly pushed down to Queen in an effort to contain the escaped madman. Radio cars roared through the streets, 
and teams of uniformed officers banged on doors and searched basements. The search was like a blunt instrument. It was an assemblage of raw manpower, and Detective Parker directed it as best he could. But there was another army on the ground that day, and Andy Parker was also serving as their general. Unlike the teams of bluecoats racing in every direction, no one would have recognized this second army as representatives of law and order. They were bakers and butchers, workers and schoolboys, boxers and taxi drivers, an army of irregulars, each determined to do what they could to bring the poet to justice before he could unleash his customary chaos upon the city they served. They were the assembled agents of the Red Panda, and they served their mysterious chief with the ferocity of those who knew they served true justice. Andy Parker was not only a police detective, he was one of the most trusted members of this secret force. Agent 51. Not that he needed to use the designation much anymore. He had served longer than just about anyone on active duty, and was a legend among his fellow agents. Some had known him long enough to know that he was just a man, even if most of what was said about his exploits in the service of the Red Panda were true. But those men who knew him well respected him even more than those to whom he was a figure of adventure stories come to life. It was unusual for Parker to draw attention to himself by commanding two teams at once, but circumstances dictated there was no time for subtlety. The poet had a reputation, and panic spread fast. By the time the evening editions came out, the Red Panda wanted his old foe back in a cage, and Andy knew that he was right. Parker hung up the call box phone with its direct line to headquarters. The police were long on directives and short on strategy. Everyone agreed the poet would head south and get out of the city until the heat died down. Parker was less sure. It was certainly what he would do if he were in the villain's shoes, but Parker knew that this particular fiend would also write an elaborate and technically perfect lyrical poem about his escape and subsequent crime spree, and that maybe, just maybe, logic was not the strong suit to base your investigation on. Hey, Andy, a man called as he hopped off the running board of a car that barely slowed down as it raced along Gerard. It was Mac Tully, a fellow agent of long standing and great repute. Mac never seemed terribly excited about anything. He seemed to radiate a certain calm focus, and Parker was always glad to see him in a spot. Tell me something good, Mac. Andy Parker said with a turn of his head to ensure there were no blue coats nearby. I could do that, Mac grinned, but I'd be lying. Is that okay? Where's Tank? I thought he was with you, Andy frowned. Tank Brody was too big to miss. He's on a boat, Mac shook his head and shrugged. Of all the things I expected you might say, Parker deadpanned, that wasn't one of them. He roped the guy into taking him down river to check the shallows, Mac grinned again. It was a legitimate display of smooth talking and I didn't know he had it in him. Why didn't you stick with him? The boat is little, and Tank is not. He'll be okay, Mac said. I don't get the feeling we're coming up with much on this one anyway. Two hours and nobody's seen a thing. Well, said a youthful voice behind them, I wouldn't exactly say nobody. Hello, I'm John Bell of Bells in the Battery, along with my associates, Arnie Kunchbein. I can introduce myself. Thank you very much. All right. Hi, I'm Arnie Kunchbein. That's it? That's it. And also, do you want me to introduce you, Brad? Well, of course, Mr. Bell. That's your job as host. Thank you, Brad. And I'd like to introduce Brad... Hold it. What? Here's your script. Script? Well, <laughs> you got to know what to say. All right. <clears throat> 
And introducing Brad Montworth, a salesman, incomparable public relations expert, and, of course, unrivaled attorney at law. No, come on, you know how to say it, Mr. Bell. Unrivaled attorney, attorney at, at law. law. Oh, Mr. Bell, you shouldn't say those things. You make me blush. Can I do my introduction over again? No. We're here for an important reason. Very important. Indeed. If you think you deserve significant financial compensation, call Brad Motworth, attorney, attorney at attorney. law. Oh, boy. At 5554. No, 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 no. We're here to remind everybody to take steps to avoid the coronavirus. Yeah, don't catch it. Because there's no one you can sue. Wash your hands thoroughly and keep social distancing. What? Social distancing. One more time. Stay about six feet away from everybody else. Right, very good. Oh, I gotta wash my hands thoroughly. I don't wanna get me this corona. Ooh, keep your distance now. Socially. I wanna keep feeling fine, corona. Never gonna stop getting squirts from my Purell. I'm always gonna buy all the toilet paper that they sell. Bye, 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 bye. Bye, corona. Bye, corona. Don't get no closer, huh? Beat it, huh? Far enough where I can't see your eyes, Corona. An illness history is not for me. Uh-uh. Don't want to try your COVID on for size, Corona. Never gonna touch. Stay away. My epidermis never wants to be close to where that nasty germ is. Bye, 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 bye. Woo. Fly Corona. Captain Fly Corona. What? Pumpkin Pie Corona. Now wait a minute. Have a Corona. Goodbye Corona. Good riddance.